Hello, I'm Banning Air, and you're listening to Season 5 of the Afropop Close-Up Podcast, where we go beyond the music into politics, history, religion, and culture. In this episode, we revisit the life of a familiar musician, Johnny Clegg of South Africa. If you heard our tribute program to Johnny, who died of cancer in July 2019, you know about his youthful immersion into Zulu culture and his extraordinary career as a band leader, songwriter, and riveting stage performer. But today, we focus on something more personal, his friendship with age mate and fellow musician Sipo Mchunu. I'll be your host for this episode, Johnny and Sipo, a friendship made on earth. But first, here's Johnny. I see my life as a story and I'm writing my story and I'm the author of my actions. I'm responsible for them. But a lot of times I get scripted into other people's story, you know, and I say, hey, this is an interesting role you're scripting for me, but can you give me a bit more meat or something more to play with? That's one complaint Johnny never had about Sipo Mchunu. In many interviews I did with Johnny over the years, I was always struck by the way he spoke about Sipo. He would talk about the music, how the songs were written and so on, but mostly he spoke about their friendship, which came across as more important, more fundamental than the rest of it. After Johnny died, I found myself regretting the fact that I had never had a chance to interview Sipo. I first saw their band Jaluka in 1985 in Boston, just as a spectator. That turned out to be the year Jaluka dissolved. Johnny and Sipo reunited to tour just one other time over 10 years later, but I never spoke to Sipo that time either. As I was thinking about this wistfully, I realized it wasn't too late. So with the help of Johnny's son, Jesse, and Johnny's longtime manager, Roddy Quinn, I reached Sipo by telephone on his farm in Zululand. The audio is a bit dodgy, not always easy to understand, but what a great feeling it was to hear about this unusual friendship from the other perspective. Johnny and myself, I tell you, man, I don't know how to stand it because we've been very close. It was more than my brother, was more than anything. Always, from the start, we laughed together, we make a joke. You know, I couldn't lie to him because he can read my eye. I can read him, he couldn't lie to me. We didn't like that one person, I'm telling you. Man, it's 100%. Ah. You can hear the pain in his voice. I almost didn't want to put him through it, but I had to ask Sipo to take me back to the beginning. What did he remember about how it all started? It's a long, long story because we met in 1969 in Johnsburg. I don't heard about the white boys trying to do the Zulu music or the Zulu dancing. A friend of mine, he brought me to Johnsburg. I was just walking there as a street musician. I used to play with a small guitar, walking up and down in the street. Because in the first time when I came to Johannesburg, I didn't know the town, you know, I couldn't read or write. If I want to go somewhere, I have to make a mark, maybe go the fence or the trees. When I'm going, I must know how I'm going to come back. Sipo landed a job as a garden worker in Johannesburg, and once, on a day off, he passed by Johnny's place with his guitar. When I was walking there, I just hear whistling. She was following me because I was singing and shouting and all that thing. So he was following me. He tried to stop me. Then he whistled again, he stopped me. He said, no, please, I want to talk to you. And he came to me. I didn't understand because he also was very suffering about speaking Zulu. 
And uh, yeah, he invited me to inside his place there, which I was very scared to go in there. He told his mother, but me, I met my friend Asta, he was playing very good music and so so. So I went inside, they asked me to sit in a sofa, which I was very scared. But his mother also speaks a little bit of Zulu. And if something I don't understand from John is the mother he sent to me. So his mother tried to help us. In this early part of the story, Sipo kept referring to his fear. On that first visit, for example, Johnny pulled out a tape recorder to record some of Sipo's songs. Sipo didn't know what this strange device was. He actually imagined it might contain a tokolosh, an evil spirit. I was very worried and I was very scared. I tried to back away from that thing. So I said, no, I'm walking out. And the mother tried to explain to me about the tape before I said, no, 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 I'm going. Sipo's fear was more about his unfamiliarity with urban life and technology than about South Africa's fraught racial politics. Actually, I didn't care about the politics because I didn't know what the politics is. To me, politics was nothing because I didn't know about that. Well, maybe not, but he knew enough to be afraid of what might happen in a white person's house. From there, the two boys, both about 16 years old, became friends. But when Johnny tried to visit Sipo at the house where he worked as a gardener, Sipo got a lesson in those politics. The people I've been working with, they didn't want him to come into the house. And I tried to explain to those people, we're not doing nothing, it's just my friend and so on. The woman, he said, I understand, but the law doesn't let us to let you friend visit you. You're not allowed to do that. Hey, I was very worried. So we have to make a plan. How are we going to meet when he comes to visit me there? When he comes to me, he stands outside in the street and the day just whistle. He knows my time when I'm going to be up. Seven o'clock, he comes there whistle. So I, I walk outside just to meet him. We've done that many, many times. By now, Sipo was teaching Johnny traditional guitar songs. Johnny's mother arranged for them to sing at a private party. But so far, nothing professional. Music was just another part of their friendship. We've been very close together, like anything, you know. We've been sleeping in the mountains, sleeping in the bush. We've been doing a lot of things. And uh, yeah, I don't remember which year I invited him to come down to uh, a Wema hostel in Johannesburg to see the Zulu dancing. Johnny spoke often about what a mind-blowing experience it was the first time he saw the dancing and singing that went on in a migrant workers' hostel. But it almost didn't happen. And of course, for the same old reason. They let me in, but the white guy, no. Nothing got in there. Yeah, the white guy, no. So this hostile guard's name was Malevo, and Sipo figured out a way to manipulate him. I was the guy, he was drinking. He always having a, a brandy. I said, no, I have to make a plan. One day, I bought him a half jug of brandy. I said, Baba Malevo, I want to speak to you. He said, what? I said, no, I've got something to you. And he was so happy, and he said, where is the white guy? I said, he's coming. He said, you bring him for two minutes. I said, two minutes is not enough. Give me five minutes. So he was really happy with my brandy. So he let Johnny in from the first time. He went into the Wema Hotel. 
Sipo and Johnny had the same problem when they went to Zululand together. Johnny's mother suggested that he get a document from the university proving that he was doing research there. That worked, but Johnny still wasn't allowed to enter Sipo's house. They had to set up a tent outside and make it look like he was sleeping there. You mustn't stay longer. They gave him about five days. They said five days only you must go back. But, you know, we didn't understand what the hell is going on. We, we just saying, oh, they just worrying us. They get us here and so and so, you know. Yeah, especially on my side, I didn't understand the politics, the politics, why they don't like us to stay together. They just jealous. <laughs> just jealous. As though they wished they could have a friendship like that. Well, it's not hard to see how they might have been jealous, because for these two, this was the experience of a lifetime. Here's how Johnny remembered those early days. We got together in about 1969-70, we started to play all the alternative venues. The cultural segregation at that point in time wouldn't allow whites or blacks to play in any public area, town halls or public halls or venues. So we played private venues. We did shows at the university. We gave demonstrations of Zulu guitar, sort of ethnomusicological things. But we also played street music and competed in the street music tradition around all the migrant labor hostels. On a Saturday and a Sunday, all the different groupings of street musicians would get together and informally compete in the street. There's no, you don't win a prize, you, you won fame. Uh, basically, that so-and-so beat so-and-so. And you know, did you hear his latest song about prostitutes? Gosh, it's funny. There's a middle section there where he actually gives little cries, false cries of pleasure that this prostitute is doing while she's counting the money and how many men she's had in that day. Or the songs about uh, being chased by the police for a past offence and this guy's running through people's homes and jumping, you know, over garden walls with this contingency of police after him. So you become well-known for your ability to describe very, very colorfully and sing with great melodies and portray with passion your predicament as a migrant worker and share that with the people around you. So the storytelling, humor, and passion counted every bit as much as the music. One thing Johnny always mentioned about Sipo was the deep sense of humor they shared. That, for me, was a very powerful element in our friendship because he made me laugh. I've never laughed like it. And even today when we get together, he says things which can really make me laugh with all my heart. We'd go gambling, you know, and what, what happens is that we would lose. And then we would go home and he'd take money from underneath his mattress and say, this money has been trusted to me by other age mates to take home to their wives because I'm going home next week. Let me just take a few pounds out of this and, and, and let's go and gamble it. And I'd say, are you ready? You know, <laughs> you want to do that because it's not your money, really. You know, if you lose it, that's it, you know. And he'd say, no, 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 we, we listen to it. We go for it and we lose. So then he comes, we go back home again, we take all of it and we lose all of it. So now we're in a, a, a severe trouble because, I mean, that's, that can get you stabbed, you know. I mean, these guys, these migrant workers, they've worked very hard to get a little bit of money and they've trusted you to take the money home. So, I mean, Sipo's in a serious position now. And then he'll start making up this fantasy story. 
and we will laugh for two hours in this predicament. I mean, his predicament is serious and he'd laugh and go through all the different kinds of things. Of He can see himself running now down the highway, you know, competing with the racing cars with this huge impy of people behind him trying to chase him and catch him and kill him, you know, but basically his age mates. And he'd make up this incredibly funny story where he would be the victim of this, of this, of this entire circumstance. I used to make a lot of jokes. You know, the small thing, I make it bigger. You know? <laughs> I always make him laugh. Like, say, that chicken is not a chicken, it's a guinea fowl. And you would say, why are you saying that if it looks the color? Just carrying a small thing around until it gets bigger, we, we start laughing. And, and, and Johnny loves it. And the way I was doing it, I always call him, he phoned me, even at night, late at night, we were still on the phone, talking, joking, make me laugh. You know, there's no way to get somebody like him. No way. Johnny was my brother. More than anything, was my brother. He was very aware of the fact that human beings actually have no control over anything. Part of being a human being is accepting the fact that no matter how much you plan your life and how much you think you're in control, you aren't. Things are going to happen every day, which are going to really throw you. And he, he just had an eye for these things, and he'd recognize them when they happened. And when he did, it was like he'd met an old friend, you know, <laughs> and it like it would wink at him. And then he would convey that to you, and he'd let you into his secret in such a way that, you know, as a young person, it was, like, it was marvelous. And so all these tribulations and trials that he's been through, and he's been through many, from the, the tribal war that broke out in his area, which, which led to the burning down of his homestead, the loss of like many, many thousands of rands. Uh, he accepts it quite philosophically and smiles and just says, you know, well, I've been ambushed by circumstance again. There I was, you know, and he'll tell the story of how, you know, how really in control he was. And suddenly out of the blue, this whole thing developed. And at the end of the day, he was left this burning mass of ruins. His cars were burnt, a victim, you know. So there was just something about that which I found very attractive and I actually started to see it myself. I think this is a common worldview that comes out of traditional peasant societies. It's a typical kind of thing, but his was so heightened and he had such a good, he's a very, very articulate speaker in Zulu. He's, he's very gifted, he's, he's got incredible images. So when he writes songs about it or when he talks about it, it's so funny. It's really hilarious. It's very humorous. All this hijinks and humor takes on added poignancy when you put it in context. I mean, these guys were dealing with the most tense and violent years of apartheid, and they were making some of the most joyful music you would ever want to hear. music comes out of the saddest places because music there is a humanizing force. We used to play in the townships in South Africa in the 70s and the 80s and Umbakanga music is just, it's all in the major mode and you get up there and you just have a fantastic time and for two hours 
you are humanized in a bigger dehumanizing context. In that little hall that you're sitting in and you're watching, you get back in touch with your humanity in a very, very powerful way. And um, there's always a sense of humor, irony in the music. Even songs which are really up and are critical, there's always a little smirk there, a little smile. And you know, it comes out of the favelas, it comes out of the townships, it comes out of all the toughest places. When he passed away, I was finished, finished. I feel like my body, my heart is empty. Even now, when I think about him, I feel like I've lost a lot of things, everything. The guy was helping me with a lot of things. You know, as a man, I never been to the school, but he made me understand more than the person he been to the school, like I'm telling you. He made me understand a lot of things. I never in my life get a person like that. Johnny mentioned the tribal war that destroyed Sipo's homestead and how he accepted it so philosophically. Looking back, what Sipo remembers is how Johnny helped him through that ordeal. You know, I've lost everything. I've lost my house and everything. But after that, he come back to me and says, look, you still can do something. Let's get together again. Let's do the music. I said, no, okay. I was okay with the music, but I didn't love the traveling too much because I was feeling like it's taking me away from my family. So this is how Jaluka enjoyed that brief revival in the mid-90s. It didn't last long, but once again, you see that the whole idea was more about the bond between these two guys than about any musical or career objective. In my interviews with Johnny, he always made a point of enumerating the burgeoning number of wives and children in Sipo's compound. So I had to ask Sipo for an update. No. <laughs> Are you sitting or standing there? <laughs> Are you sitting down or you standing? <laughs> I am sitting down. You can hit me. <laughs> no, actually, I have about 42 children, okay? Some of them, they part of, I've, I've lost about four, five of them now. You know, I've got 38. I have big But we're still staying together. We're still keeping our culture. Now I'm happy. Uh, I'm very happy with my family because we respect each other like anything. Part of what made this friendship so powerful for Johnny is that it linked him to a very special group of people, specifically his Zulu age mates. Johnny talked about the Zulu's warrior history and how regiments were organized by age brackets so that you and your peers would move through life together, sharing experiences, trials, calling out one another's praise names, some of which were more like taunts than praises. Embarrassing was the word Johnny used. But he found that social connection so compelling and beautiful right up to the end. I must tell you that, you know, when I was sick and I've got the sickness, I felt far more comfortable telling my age mates than I did my white friends. Um, there was more nourishment in the language, the Zulu language explaining and talking about it and, and the idioms. And they would say to me, no, you must carry on. It dances like The ox plows, even though it is emaciated, you must carry on plowing. 
Uh, they had all these expressions for hard times and difficult things that one must overcome and um, lots of very hopeful and clever perceptions about adversity and how one is shaped by adversity and adversity has a hidden gift in it. And they, they'll pepper their discussion with these idioms and little proverbs. And I just found it very comforting. My family is in the farm, goats and kidney for chicken and everything. I'm happy. I'm still playing at home. I like to keep it on going because sometimes I would like to do maybe two or three albums. I hope but you not do. now. Yes, I want to set it down a little bit because hey, when I think about Johnny, always I feel very bad, very sad. Well, I sure hope Sipo does record again. I suppose one reason I wanted to make this podcast is that of all the many artists I've interviewed over some 33 years now, Johnny is one of very few that I would call a friend. He always remembered me, remembered things we had talked about in the past, and he always shared in a way you would with a friend. Some people just have a talent for friendship, and it's a real gift. I want to close with an exchange Johnny and I had in 2011 in New York. We were talking about a song from the album Humans. The song was Hidden Away Down. And in that wonderful way Johnny had, he went back to the moment that inspired the song. And it was a reach into history, personal reflection, even literature. In other words, a full-on Johnny Clegg song. But then the conversation took a turn that I think surprised us both. And that song I wrote when I saw the, the funeral of Edward Kennedy. Kennedy came to South Africa in 1985. He was a very, very unwelcomed visitor by the South African government. They didn't want to give him a visa. He struggled to get in, but he got in. He was invited by Bishop Tutu. And he gave a talk at the University Great Hall uh, in Johannesburg. And I attended the talk. And I was amazed at his ability to make us realize that, you know, South Africa was such a unique kind of racism. But he managed to take it out and to universalize it and to link it to the civil rights movement and to link it to all other kinds of issues around caste, race, discrimination, prejudice. You felt that you were part of a much bigger movement. You weren't just on your own in South Africa. And then one year later, he authored all the economic sanctions against South Africa, got them passed through Congress. And that was a critical final blow to the apartheid system. And then he disappeared off the radar, you know, 85, 95, 2005, 20 years. Didn't think about him much. And then he died in August 2009. And there was this, this amazing um, eulogy on CNN, hours of people talking about him and talking about Chappaquiddick and talking about his demons and the womanizing and the alcohol abuse and all the various compromising moments and the struggle that he had to deal with all of those. And at the same time, being one of the most respected lawmakers who authored 300 laws, got them passed through Congress. So I heard all of this and there was this old lady who came on. She was really old, but very feisty and had all the marbles together, like a patrician. And they said to her, you knew him as a youngster. What for you encapsulates his, his life? And she said, I will quote Hemingway. The world breaks everyone, and in the end, some are stronger in their broken parts. Ah, I thought, geez, there's a song there, boy. 
we all have moments where some bad behavior or we make the wrong move and and then we have to hide it and we just keep it down there and it you know it turns into this little dragon and you keep it in its den you know life is hard life is tough we deal with these things we might even have deep wounds um which are invisible which we carry but being a human being is living in the paradox it's living in that contradiction i love that you came to that that way because uh my father was a real kennedy man yes and um as it happened that chappaquiddick summer we were on chappaquiddick we used to go there wow. in the summers a lot we were only about a mile from where that happened and um, and we had rented a tv because it was at the time when the moonshot was happening we wanted to see the moonshot and i just always remember my father watching Kennedy at that press conference and being so conflicted because yes. he loved Kennedy. Yeah, but he can't he, he, tell he's yeah, lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I like to remember Johnny laughing with all his heart at life's contradictions, at that very lack of control humans have over their fate that he found so amusing in Sipo's stories and songs. As I record this podcast, it's a time of loss for so many around the world. And when you confront death, you ask yourself what counts most in life. And for me, there's no better answer than the gift of friendship, real friendship. And the friendship between Johnny and Sipo, with all its improbabilities and contradictions, is about as good a model as I can imagine. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. But to keep this series going, we need your support. Visit afropop.org and make a donation. Every dollar counts. Thanks to Jesse Clegg and Roddy Quinn for connecting me with Sipo Mchunu, and especially to Sipo himself for sharing his memories. Some of the music in this podcast was composed and performed by yours truly. The rest was Johnny and Sipo. But to hear much more of their music and story, be sure to visit afropop.org and search out the program Remembering Johnny Clegg. You will be glad you did. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Banning Air. Thank you.